Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Kim Branson. Kim is Senior Vice President and Global Head of Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning at GSK. Kim, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. Good to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Let's jump right in. You come to GSK by way of Genentech, which kind of this historical Silicon Valley challenger. Before that, you spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and now you're at a large pharma. Tell us about that journey and how it came to be. Sure. So I guess my background is, you know, I did my PhD in machine learning, really looking at applying machine learning to actually drug discovery. So small molecule drug discovery and design was what I, what I started off at. And this is, I'm dating myself, but like 2003, around then, when we're, we're, you know, the, the cutting edge techniques were things like support vector machines and random forests and things like that. Doing a lot of work on doing simulation of physics simulation, things like that, or small molecules binding to proteins and all the things around with that. From there, I ended up doing a very sort of academic thing of spending time at Stanford and others. Did a lot of started work, earlier work on machine learning applied there into graph convolution networks, that sort of stuff was happening. And a lot of my time was, you know, I spent some time at Vertex Pharmaceuticals, but then a fair bit of time sort of in startups of, and so things like, you know, was involved in early search startup that was acquired by Twitter, another company doing large scale medical records aggregation and differential privacy machine learning on that sort of stuff. And although like all things, 90% of your time is building all the stuff to do ETLs, extract tables out of PDFs <laughs> and all those wonderful things. And that was acquired by Apple. And then a lot of large scale machine learning on claims, other types of data. It's all about like predicting like, What's the probably predicting disease X at time T given, given someone's past medical history so you could intervene early and things like that. And from there, many friends at Genentech, I've always been involved in computational chemistry. So joined Genentech and I guess really recruited from Genentech to, to come to GSK, which it's one of those things that wasn't really on my radar as a, as a place to be. And I had some friends there, and I, you know, I'd known of the company for a while, but um, they sort of convinced me to come in and I realized that actually it's something very different happening here. So they brought in a new head of R&D, so Hal Barron had joined and you know, how worked at Calico with Daphne Cole and people like that. And I was sort of like, wow, there's a guy who really, you know, how actually really understands what machine learning looks like and what it requires to be done properly. And sort of Queen really explained to me that like, it's going to be such a core part of GSK, right? They're like, they're really serious about it. It's not just a company like, I want to build a 10 person team and we'll dabble and we'll kind of half resource you, but it was going yeah. to be such a fundamental thing. So that's what sort of led me here and has led me sort of create the, create the group and then scale as we, as we do now. And give us some context for GSK. What's the core business and where does ML and AI fit in? Yeah, sure. So we're obviously a pharmaceutical company. You know, we make medicines and vaccines um, across a wide range of, of things. And so GSK is an, it's an old company, right? It's been around for about 300 years, right? So all these companies, every now and then, they go through these sort of revolutions and they, you know, they sort of turn themselves inside out and reposition themselves. What was really apparent is that we have this increasing body of sort of genetic data. So these are these large genetic databases. So where we have lots of people, we cost of sequencing has gone down. So, you know, remember, so I guess 20 years ago, we had the human genome, one, mm -hmm. one, one genome. Now we can do lots and lots of people, right? So you can see, sequence lots of people, you know about their medical histories, 
And you can basically answer a question like, you know, he's a hero bunch of people that got a disease, here are a bunch of people like Oakland that don't get the disease. And ask the question, well, what's different in the genetics, right? The idea is that the genetics kind of points at a clue as to what you might want to do a medicine for, how what, what's involved in that disease. So really increasing amount of just data being generated in the genetic side of things. The other side of things that's happening is really these technology for functional genomics, right? So maybe the first wave you can think of as molecular biology, right? Restriction enzymes, we get plasmids, we can like, you know, do genetic engineering and make a cell, make a protein. The next, this is really the continuation of the evolution of those, those tools is now with, with CRISPR and talons and those sorts of things where you can actually perturb a specific gene, right? You can turn it up or turn it down in a particular cell type almost at, and also at a single cell level. So you, now you've got this other set of technologies where you can start to, like generate huge amounts of data at scale. And what it turns out with is that we're just, biology can measure so much more now. There's just this massive amount of measurement and it's multimodal. So it's, you know, looking at RNA-seq on a single cell level. So that's looking at the messenger RNA made as you do in these edits. You can do cellular imaging, you can do proteomics, you've got all, you know, all the omics as we call them. You have all this explosion of data. And so really you need machine learning in the middle of it to sort of make sense of the data but also even to help you kind of make sense of all the literature you've got and you have to plan sort of the next experiments. And that's sort of in the discovery phase. So it's, it's really core. Cool. We have this, this three-pronged strategy that's sort of this genetics, right, and functional genomics on the side and AIML in the middle to sort of integrate it together to help us really, you know, find the targets and design better medicines. And so is it accurate to think of genetics as the kind of the data source there, what's happening in the gene genomics as control point, the way you influence what's happening. And then AI is telling you what influence to exert based on the patterns you see. Yeah. So I think that the way I think about it is genetic databases give us a clue of what to start looking at. Right. Mm -hmm. And we know it's really important because we've done studies and others have done this as well, showing that if you've got a medicine that works on a target, so remember genes, encode messenger RNA, messenger RNA encodes proteins. Proteins are, does the things in our cell. And the proteins are what we would call as a target, the thing we want to modulate typically. And that might be with a small molecule and things like clinical things like penicillin or aspirin, or it could be something like an antibody, right? Which usually extracellular, not usually inside cells, and it sort of blocks, blocks something. And so the genetics is giving us a hint of what to look for. But it doesn't, it's not the whole story. You still need to actually kind of, it gives you a clue, but you need to sort of go and do further experiments to understand like, is this the correct target or is it something else that's in this pathway that is operating in? That's the mm -hmm. functional genomics coming in where the functional mm -hmm. genomics allows us to basically, what happens when we turn this particular gene off, like lower the level of that protein, does that look like it has the right effect, right? And it's sort of mimicking the effect of, of a, making a medicine. So we don't have to make a medicine to work out whether it works. We can use yeah. that kind of thing to inform it. So it sort of it starts to put these things together and all these experiments now, because the cost of measurement has gone down, because we can take a single cell and make a change in a single cell, right? And then do RNA sequencing, like look at the, all the changes in messenger RNA on those single cell levels, it generates a whole bunch of data that's at a, at a large scale. And that's where we sort of bring machine learning in. Maybe I can illustrate the point, probably the one of the most, one of the a key problem we work on is that in these large genetic databases, right, we really only want to know what to do with about probably 15 to 20% of what we call the variance. And a variance mm -hmm. is where, you know, your 
DNA sequence will differ from mine, right? Maybe I get the disease and you don't, and I've got like a particular mutation, right? right? If that mutation falls into what we call the open reading frame of a gene or the bit that encodes for the protein that gets translated in mRNA encodes the protein, we know mm-hmm. it affects the protein and we can go and look at that protein and work out what's happening. You know, is it, does it not fold? Or is it, is it fold, but it's missing? It's not as active, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of them fall outside of that. Right, they fall into the regulatory regions of DNA, and you can imagine there's a whole bunch of control structures in DNA saying what to turn on, what proteins, and what conditions. And so we spend a lot of time in building machine learning models, really, to understand what genes those variants are, are regulating. Right, the ones that are in the control area. All right, it's mm-hmm. not always like the closest gene; it can they can have quite long range effects. There might be different proteins, right? And so, one thing that if we can sort of understand. What, what things they're regulating, it gives us a whole lot of sort of potential targets to go and look for. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the sort of thing we use machine learning on, right? So we use it on discovering kind of, you know, things to make medicines against, so better targets and they're genetically validated so we know they're more likely to work. And then actually maybe things on the closer to the clinical side of the world, right? So I've got a medicine, how best to use it, who's going to respond, respond by it, how do we measure the response and things like that. And that's things like computational pathology or other types of things in, in, the, in the clinical domain. One of the things that I heard in your explanation, this is maybe a, a little bit of a tangent, but was suggesting that, you know, I think of variants as, you know, one of the genes gets flipped from an A to a G or something like that, yeah. right? So it's, you've got these four and one of them gets flipped. But I heard in your description that, you know, that's a oversimplification and maybe there's more of a qualitative changes that happen, you know, in terms of the way the protein is folded or there's that it's not just, you know, which gene is encoded. Am I hearing that correctly or? Yeah. So, you know, our cells are sort of, a, you know, they're a network. We have lots of different proteins to be made and they, you know, they communicate to other proteins and form up various functions. And sometimes it's literally the amount of the protein is important, right? And so, you know, there are classic diseases. You can think of these, what we call a rare genetic disorder, where you've got a single mutation, Right. Mm-hmm. And it makes the protein function less. You know, a canonical example might be, I mean, you, th- you think of hemoglobin in the sickle cell, or you can think of factor 10A deficiencies. You don't make it effective factor 10A. You know, you need to put that protein back. Some things are about like the level of the proteins it can influence behavior. Some things are about some of these mutations means that maybe the protein doesn't get made at all. Something mean the protein gets made, but it doesn't, it's not as stable. So it gets turned over rapidly. So you just don't have as, have as much. Yeah. And sometimes you might have a mutation that makes a protein always on. So it's always conforming its phone, so it's not regulated anymore, right? That's another thing. And because it's not regulated, it's driving the behavior of other pathways and that leads to aberrant function, which leads to pathology and disease, right? And so it's not just as simple as like, I've got a mutant, right? You know, what, what is the mutant? This mutant tells me I need to make a drug against that. It's actually, what's the effect of the mutant? And this is the kind of the thing before mm-hmm. I was talking mm-hmm. about that kind of the variant to gene problem as we phrase it. Okay. The other missing piece is that kind of the gene to function problem, right? Mm. And that's the other, the other that's another a key thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got these data sources that come from genetics and genomics, and you're applying AI, ultimately trying to develop new drugs, new interventions. Can you you talk about some of the specific use cases or problems? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of things, first of all, thinking about, you know, taking your clues from genomics and things to come up with those targets, right? And then you have to think about, well, what's the effect of what we were just talking about, like that mutation on that target? 
right? So there might be, is it more stable or not? And then it might be, well, I think about how do I, you know, what a thing is to take the target and that sort of cellular context and know that you've kind of made something better or not, right? Like, how do I know that I've actually found a good target that's, that's moving, it's going gonna, gonna to become a good medicine in, in, in people. And that's where actually, so we do all of our things we build, all the models we build actually have sort of a large sort of experimental feedback. And it's actually... <laughs> You know, for example, that variant to gene model that has sort of an experimental feedback loop where we're actually doing what we call experiments as code. So we're asking the model what it needs, and it's really sort of adaptive sampling under uncertainty constraints. So, you know, rather than having data being generated by some other process at GSK, and I'm trying to build a model of that, where I might have 900 examples a week of something I'm very good at, right? And I'd really like a, I really like more examples of things I'm not good at. We actually sort of use a lot of sort of automated like biology. So this is biology done with robots, robotic automation to generate data and things that sort of feedback into these models and it's the model that becomes the tool that helps us solve the problem right so we can use that model we've built to help us map more of those variants to those genes but then we still need to understand that gene to function part and again there we use automated experimentation but in this case we we're doing things with these various cellular models so they can be what we call induced pluripotent cells, right? These iPSC cells. So these are like stem-like cells from patients that have a disease, patients that don't have a disease. Mm-hmm. And then we actually sort of want to work out how, what we want to basically take, take the, the disease tissue and make it look more like the normal tissue. And when we say look like, it could be measured by a bunch of different ways. It could be measured by looking at imaging data. It could be measured looking at gene expression pattern or protein or some kind of functional consequence. And typically these assays are, are complicated. You can't do you know, with CRISPR and things like that, sometimes you can just do what we call a genome-wide screen. I'll just do all the things, right? All 20,000 genes. Mm-hmm. These ones are so complex that you can't do that. And you sort of need to do an adaptive experimentation thing. So you can take your clues you start with from genetics and from the, the literature, for example, and you sort of seed a, mo- a model for that. And then the model sort of makes an experiment, right? And we do everything as a sequential learning kind of problem. We, make, we do an experiment, we perturb a few genes, we look at how it, how it moves things. We feed that data back in and we say, okay, what have we learned? Based on that, my next best experiment is to do is to do this other thing. So then I, I make another mutation. I do another sort of round of like interventions on that cellular system and then sort of iterate. And then you think about it, it's kind of like an optimization. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I'm trying to find the best target to move it to that, right? Right, right. And so, and you want to get there with the fewest number of steps, right? And try and find the best thing. And at the same time, while you're trying to make it look like, you know, it's, you know, affecting the disease so you have to like your ground truth is that cellular models you also do other things like making sure that like you know there are certain proteins in the body that you can't touch right that like have toxicity associated with them right so classic one is in you know cardiotoxicity right like it's no good making something against your ra drug if it's going to give you cardiotoxic right so there's certain things that we know we can't hit so this there's toxicity from what we call on target tox if i hit this protein but something bad happens and, and then there are other sorts of toxicology we can also at the same time have an ai system that's learning to learn which targets are toxic which targets not to touch based on prior data and things like that which things are e- which targets are easier to make a small molecule or not it is a multi-objective optimization because i can come up with targets that are really great right and we, we sit around well, well we have no idea how to make a selective medicine against that An example of one of those things is a protein involved in cancer called kras you know it took people years to come up with a selective kras inhibitor it was a, always a great target but it just was really what we call intractable so it's this optimization of finding something that moves your your model of the disease in the right area it's kind of tractable it's not toxic right and then we can put forward so that's that sort of the thing there. So we, again, we use machine learning in that sense to help design those experiments to carry that out. 
So can we can we maybe take a, a step back? Have you talked through a, a specific concrete example of a, a project, whether you're talking about the, the cancer one you just mentioned and you know what the data sources are, what the evaluation criteria are, and then talk through how this sequential learning idea yeah. plays out in some concrete context? Sure. Let's talk about the variant to gene one, because I think that's something that's quite, everybody has more of a sense of that now, especially. So that, mo- that what we do in that model is we have some genetic variants from from standard GWAS analysis, these genetic wide association studies. And these are saying these variants in this region of DNA important in the model of this disease. But we don't know which gene it is. It could be gene A, it could be gene B, it could be gene C. And so what we actually do is the, the system that looks at that, it treats the whole thing sort of a bit as a ranking problem. So top level model is, is like a ranking model, right? And there are a whole bunch of different features that feed into that. So think of it equivalent to web search. You're saying for this disease and this variant, what is the gene, right? And you're coming up with your rank list of genes, right? And you'd want your top rank list gene to be first, be first on the page, right? To be the, like, the causal gene. Mm-hmm. That system actually has a bunch of different models, right? That feed into that. So one of these models are things that are like sort of these like stacked encoder models that featureize off raw DNA. So they look at the raw DNA sequence and then they predict like which where a transcription factor and which type may bind, whether that sequence of DNA is what we call open or closed, which is where it's packed up an open or closed chromatin. There are other features that talk about whether those these particular genes are expressed or not in that in a particular tissue type, because not all genes are turned on in all different tissue types, right? You know, cardiac mm-hmm. cells are different from neuronal cells are different from skin cells. There are other features that come out of like knowledge graphs. So sort of like these node embeddings. And I can talk about how we have a very large knowledge graph we use behind things. All these different types of models, and there are some of them are neural networks in their own right. Some of them are different types of things are all sort of features that go into this other model. And it's again, a neural network type model. But again, it's supervised in a form that we say, okay, here's a variant. And here what we think is the gold standard, you know, gene for that variant is, right? And then we go away and you, you learn how to weight those particular features, right? Just much like you would train everything, anything else. The challenge we have, right, is there isn't a massive amount of gold canonical, you know, variant to gene features because I just told you that we only really know what to do with 15% of them. Mm-hmm. So then we have to do the experiment part. And the experiment is where we bring in the functional genomics. So what we actually do is take cell type and depending, this, depending on what we're doing, it could be different types of cell types, but you can say it's it's a primary T cell from a, a human donor. We do the edit, and then we actually sequence those cells. We look at the mRNA levels, and we say, okay, we know what it was before, and we know what was afterwards. So what's the differential gene expression? Yeah. And you say, I think this variant affects this gene. So then we go and look at that gene and look at the change in gene expression, right? And if we get it right, you know, that gene expression falls, and only that particular gene, right? Mm-hmm. And that's and that becomes a training data. So then that kind of feeds back in. We know we rebuild the model, and off we run again. And so what it means is that the different teams that run those different sort of submodels, they also have different data sources that they will bring in, and some of them are generated from external data, some of them internal data to build their kind of their feature factories that feed into this thing. But that's how we train the whole model, and it's a really interesting scenario because probably I would say forty five percent of the time. A simple model, right, which is like the variant affects the closest gene, will get you there and it'd be right. Yeah. Problem is, is that the rest of the time that model doesn't work. And it's not the closest gene, it could be something quite far away, 
right? And one third of the time from doing this experiment, it's really, really far away and sort of not what we expect. So we've been running this learning loop, which basically like builds a model and generates the training data at the same time. And as a result, the overall model that maps variants to genes gets better. And so we track that over time. So when we started off, you know, we were mapping like 15% of the unexplained things in UK BioWank we could map, then we went to 24%. And now we're at 40%. So we know what to do now with 40% of our genetic variants in this database. Right. And that gives us a whole bunch of new potential targets to go and explore with some of those other systems I talked about. Got it. Got it. So is the this, again, sequential learning loop, is that something that is in some ways you describe it and it sounds like this, you know, automated thing that's kind of continuing to iterate over time, performing an optimization across you know, all of the experiments you're doing. In other ways, it sounds like you're applying machine learning. It's giving you some, you know, some features, some signals, and then it, you know, goes into a scientist's brain that determines, you know, what the next step is. How close does that loop? Yeah, so the tools I'm talking about, the, the, the models we build, you know, they're obviously scientists involved in running the, you know, the experiments as code, right? So sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, tending to the robots, depending on how complicated the experiment and the throughput we're doing involved in that it's really where the human scientists get involved is sort of the output of this sort of thing mm-hmm. so you know another experiment we have is involved in discovery of, of an of cancer drugs right and it's, it's a concept something called synthetic lethality and all that means is basically all cells most most biology we have redundant pathways are really important things Tumor cells grow really rapidly and they tend to sometimes like because they divide so rapidly they can tend to like break and, and only have one functional copy of it or something, you know? And so what we know then is if we can identify which things are likely to break and I can make a drug against that sort of thing, because it doesn't have a backup anymore, it selectively kills the tumor cell over your normal tissue, right? Mm-hmm. So a GSK drug like niraparib, right? It's a, what's called a, it's a class of drug called a PARP inhibitor, but PARP inhibitors are involved in DNA repair, right? So basically if you stop the DNA repair, it then basically acts to sort of kill the, t- the cancer cell. So what we actually do is have another system. And again, this one basically looks and tries to come up with what we call synthetic lethal pairs, right? If you see this mutation, then you can target this other particular gene. And so we have a common set of things. We know tumor cells, like, you know, mutations they get and say, well, what things pair with that? So again, we do experiments, we, we knock that thing out, we turn it up, we turn it down, we look at its effect on viability in a whole bunch of different tumor cell lines. But then, the output of that doesn't automatically become like this is the target, go away and make an antibody against it or make a small molecule against it. That's where we interface with our experimental colleagues because there's a whole lot of, these are all narrow purpose ML systems we're building, right? So there's a whole lot of, of data and things like that and things that they bring into bear to think about, to work out like how well that happens and different experiments that they will then go and design to really, it's really a hypothesis that's suggested by this machine learning algorithm, for example. So, you know, all the things we do, to surface the information, to work with our, our colleagues on this sort of thing. And really sometimes the production of the ML model is a lot more automated, but then the use of the model is where the, the human scientists, right? These are tools for the scientists, right? We cannot encode all the background knowledge of biology and things yeah. in the way we want. And also the scientific literature is really messy, right? Not everything in it is correct. So there's a, there's a certainly a role for domain expertise in that. And did I hear you Earlier reference work that you've done to apply machine learning to understand, to, to mine the scientific literature itself? That's right. So 
one of the ways you think about if you're doing sequential learning and you're running all these big learning, learning loops is humans, we've been doing medicine for a long time, right? We know a lot about biology and <laughs> medicine and things like that. It would yeah. be foolish to start from a clean slate and have to learn all that. It would take a lot more samples. So there are ways to think about that, like how do I have structured priors if you're a Bayesian and things like that. So we have a, another group who does, you know, one of the great advances you've seen obviously has been NLP. So we have all these journal articles that are either in, you know, open source, like on the BioArchive or, you know, Elsevier or PubMed, et cetera, right? There's lots of those, those sources. And there's also data sets published as well. And so we have a, a group that sort of builds a, an NLP type model and it's, they're based on like BERT type architectures. Again, we're seeing encoders sort of appear everywhere. And what that does is that that sort of pulls out things, right? So entities, right? So it's entity and relationship extraction. So we pull out what we call a semantic triple, which is really a thing, a type of relation, and another thing, or a subject, predicate, object pairs, right? Predicates we care about are a limited set of things. And luckily, the scientific literature isn't as free form as the rest of things, people writing things, right? So you tend to say <laughs> A has function in B, right? X does Y, yeah. X does not do Y. And where Xs and Ys could be genes, diseases, small molecules, you name it, when there's a set of things we're interested in. So we mine all that out. We run all this sort of thing over the literature. We pull out all those semantic triples and we, we stick that into a really big store. So we have a graph that's like 500 billion nodes, right? It's huge. Now we don't- Is the knowledge graph you were referring to earlier? Yeah, yeah. So we don't use that whole thing. What we do is we pull out things. So maybe I'm interested particularly in just genes and diseases and protein products of just genes and things like that. And I can pull out those subgraphs and we might do some link prediction on that. So actually it's not known, but we're pretty sure that X does do Y or maybe there's some weak evidence for it. You know, you can apply again, you're applying ML algorithms on top of that to build that knowledge base. And then we actually use usually node embeddings. There are different ways you think about how do I represent that data into my algorithm? So I don't, it doesn't have to learn that like gene X does gene Y. We've already told it that this happens, right? So how do you, how do you represent that structured knowledge that you're confident in? And this means that we can be kind of more sample efficient. You view all our ML algorithms as sort of information engines. We can be more sample efficient with the data we're doing. So we learn the things we don't know rather than relearn the things we do know is a key. So that's another big area. And once you've built these knowledge graphs, you know, there's lots of other uses you can put them to rather than just like the machine learning group. Mm -hmm. Biologists can say, oh, well, you know, what's new about my protein? Okay, here's all the facts known about my protein. Like, does X do Y? I've got a hypothesis that X is involved in Y, right? No one holds the scientific literature in their head anymore. It's, yeah. you know, it's too complicated. So you can go and query that. But the interesting thing is, like, you know, I said before, we're a big 300-year-old company. There are things that have been and gone in GSK that people have forgot, right? Like, right? right? You know, so like you actually mine your own data and go, oh, wow, we did an experiment about that. Or we found, you know, here's an interesting protein someone's got. By the way, you know, 20 years ago, we worked on this or someone worked on a related thing and they found a molecule that, that affects this. It wasn't what they were looking for at the time, but we've got it on a shelf somewhere. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing becomes like, you know, the brain of GSK. And because it's not just scientific, the papers, it's also the data sets aside with papers. You can start put, to put whole data sets where people are doing these big experiments at scale and at industrial scale into these knowledge graphs as well. So there are lots of experiments where people are doing screens for a particular function or things like that. And they come up with lists of genes that are known to be involved in things. You can import that knowledge as well into the knowledge graph. So it becomes a sort of like growing reference base to, to, to use. Yeah, yeah. One thing I'm curious about is if you think of kind of how your team operates against a quadrant of kind of innovating on the biology and innovating on the machine learning, I'm curious where you find them and where you want them to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in this space is moving so quickly. Oftentimes you may have to innovate on the machine learning to make it work for your application. Is that the case here? 
Yeah, so I think that we have, uh, in general, a lot of things, we don't work on very many things as a group. So we're about a okay. you know 120 person research group and we're mm -hmm. quite globally distributed. I'm in San Francisco. I have people in, we have team members in like Boston, Philly, London, uh, Tel Aviv, Heidelberg, Switzerland, right? There's, we're kind of everywhere. But a lot of things we work on, like there isn't a solution, right? There isn't a variant to gene off the shelf piece of software algorithm, right? Because yeah. the data's not there, you got to build the whole thing. But there are cases where we can borrow things and there are cases where we have to do research. So we do a lot of research into causal machine learning because obviously okay. we want to come up with things that are causal for the disease. So like if I, you know, and, and what I would say have a, a, a small level of clinical hysteresis. And that, all that means is basically a small change in this particular, like a drug against this thing. Like I don't have to knock it down 100%. If I knock it down 10%, has a large effect on the course of disease. That's an mm -hmm. easier medicine to make than something like, well, if you take this down to 99% of, it, of its level in the body, then you might see a clinical effect. That's probably not a good candidate for medicine. Yeah. So we do a lot of work on like causal, reconstruction of causal data from network data and things like that. And there are some areas where, you know, you might start off with, just taking things that have worked really effectively. So computational pathology is a, is a great example. So pathology is when you have, you might have seen those, those ready purple slides of a tumor and things like that, or a biopsy or things like that. And so typically they were like, you know, they were the hematoxin ears and stain slides, and they're looked at by a human pathologist who's looked at things and, know, and does things like, oh, stage one, two, or three cancer, for example. We know there's obviously some information in the image, the higher the number, worse it is, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what happened was, you know, we got digitization happening. So we got people start to scan these slides at high resolution, right? And these are big images, right? These are like four terabyte images, okay? Gigapixel images. Yeah. And then the other side, we've got ConfNets and UNETs and things like that sort of sitting around. So the natural thing was like, well, I'll just take a UNET. I'll take a ConfNet and I'll see what I can, what I can do. And I might want to segment things. I might count the number of types of cells in the slide rather than having a pathologist go through and do that, right? I might want to say, well, what's the tumor stroma ratio? Like, so the so when you take a tissue bulk, you might have the tumors growing here and there's normal tissue around. Mm -hmm. How big is that area, for example? What are the characteristics? And so it started off with people doing those types of things, right? And those technologies work. But then almost everywhere where you go, we start to answer more advanced questions. You're like, oh, I need to innovate on my methodology. So some of the things we do now are, well, can I predict the genetic status of a tumor just from the image alone? And you ask a pathologist there, they're like, well, could you tell me whether this tumor has this particular mutation from looking at it? They're like, that's crazy. There's no way I can do that on a human. Right? <laughs> and then you think, okay, well, but you can actually build models. And we've done this that can actually predict like the genetic status of the tumor. So there are subtle micro changes in the environment and stain density and things like that due to like the changes in the biological processes, right? A human mm -hmm. eye can't, be, can't obviously be sensitive to train that. But you can sometimes do be retrospective and see what features has the model learned. But suddenly you're, you're taking the convnets and these types of things and resnets sort of frequently, and then you're starting to push push them into different areas. You start to do start yeah. to tinker with them again, and then you're finding different architectures. So we're again we're we're seeing that, and we see that also in you know cellular imaging as well, where we use the same types of things. Where we're looking at cells and how their phenotypes will change. Right, so they, what they look like picturally as they change when we give them a drug or treat, don't treat them with a drug, for example. So it doesn't take much before you've taken some off-the-shelf technology, but typically you, you're starting with an architecture or something else like that that you will then adapt to your use case, right? So that big variant to gene algorithm, right? Well, a cast is a ranking problem. There's, there's been lots of machine learning research into ranking problems for a long time, right? And there's, mm -hmm. there's off-the-shelf tooling and things like that and ways to think about things. Those are things we start with, right? That we bring in. And, you know, but there are some things where it's, it's 
wholly new algorithms and architectures and things that you know we, we we're sort of having to invent as well. And does your team publish in those areas? Yeah, I mean, so we you know we publish all, all our all our code and, and our work and. It's kind of really important you do that because you talked before about like how do you find people, right? So mm-hmm. I think what's happened is there's a lot of people that have realized that you know there's now lots of this data appearing in biology. I mean, even since post-COVID, everyone's really interested in human health. Mm-hmm. And you want to find an environment where you have the computation resources and people that to do that, but nobody wants to join somewhere and then kind of vanish into a black hole, right? And we use the models you just talked about, like we're only instantly able to apply ResNets onto computational pathology and start with that because it's out there in the literature and the domain. And that's why AI has moved so fast is that free exchange of ideas and test mm-hmm. sets and state-of-the-art benchmarks. And we, we love all those things as well. So you know, we, will, we publish our code, right? Because it's the data that's really important. You know, we will publish... If it's a model that we've built, we've got our code and there's a public data set and we can build a model, we would also publish that model built public data because it's it's the sort of the the, the data GSK is generating and allows us to build a model at much higher quality. That's our, mm-hmm. our kind of strategic advantage, right? So it's, again, it's all about the data. And then that's similar to other industries, right? You know, Facebook publishes lots of really cool graph algorithms and things like that that mm-hmm. give you their social graph, right, data similar for us but it also means that we can contribute to the community we're running a a challenge i think at icl iclr uh, this year as well on uh, gene discovery and causal discovery from networks and things like that okay i think we've got two or three papers in europe this year out of the group as well mm-hmm. so yeah we, we we publish and and you know both in in the conference proceedings and then and other um, scientific literature as well it's very important for us nice nice do you do you think much about tooling and infrastructure platforms? I, I've read yeah. <laughs> that you're, I've read about your AI hub a bit. So yeah. I think the answer is yes, but. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, there's a few, the infrastructure, I mean, the one thing I learned from doing startups, like the, you, know, the, you start building infrastructure now, and the next best way to start building infrastructure is tomorrow because it allows you to scale. And, and if you suddenly have infrastructure problems, it's really difficult to solve once you're, you're in, that, in that phase. Mm. So we have, in the AI team, we have a whole group that's really our AML platform organization, and they build all the kind of tooling and infrastructure for us to kind of deal with data containers and running things and scanning algorithms and kind of those aspects. And it's about not only just GPUs, compute and things, you know, we do a lot of PyTorch extensively is our, is our preferred platform of choice. But some of it even also comes down to the things we're looking at, we end up needing kind of like novel compute. Right, so we've had a strategic partnership with a company called Cerebrus, which you may have some of you you may be familiar with. Right, Cerebrus have uh, one of these companies. They built like you know a really amazing piece of hardware, and so we use Cerebrus for a particular type of problem where we're building these encoder models on on DNA. Now, what's interesting these encoder models is we want to have a really really large window size, right? And so you get into this; it's really challenging to build model parallel and, and data parallel kind of algorithms at this sort of scale. And the data sets we, we're passing over are really, really large as well, right? These, mm-hmm. these big genomic data sets. So that was a really interesting problem that the Cerebus system is like, it's got a massive throughput. It could be a really big model because like, of the scale of the chip, right? And, and the latency between that and the memory was really large. So, you know, we started working with them. We've got a, we have a CS1 system. We'll have our CS2 soon. And, you know, that becomes a strategic thing that we can start to build new algorithms and, and play with new things on and actually build models for. And then, so the, the compute is really important. For us, it's key to be unconstrained by by compute, right? To be like, you know, mm-hmm. to think of like, what's the best way to solve the, the problem? You know, we usually constrain by data, 
like this is data I'd love to have. And so this is also why, you know, we also work with NVIDIA where pushing the bounds of CUDA. So we have a strategic um, arrangement with NVIDIA where we have people on site in London where, you know, we're making changes to low level LibDNN and things like that or working with them on those types of things. So, you know, how do we make it easy for us to do focus on like, you know, only one problem, which is the science problem rather than two problems with like, like the science problem and engineering problem, right? Because the, the challenge we face are hard enough. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a key, it's a key component for us. And the other thing is like, we want to think about how many iteration cycles a machine learning person can do per day, right? I don't want to be someone right. sitting there like, I've got an idea, I've kicked it off. Well, I guess that'll be done in two days time. I'll sit here and read the thing. I want them to be able to like, look at something, have an idea, or have a bunch of ideas, kick them off, and then actually get the results back that afternoon and think about it, and then you know, run, run another set. So that's also really key for us is to be, you know, so as we grow, we've needed to add every, every new AML hire requires, you know, a bunch more A100s or whatever we need, like added to the stack, <laughs> right? It's, it's a cost. <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you were talking about, I forget the research, the specific project, but you were, you referenced a feature factory. So you're yeah. developing these features and you, you reference a feature factory. Is that a concept or an idea or is that a, a physical thing like a feature store? So you can imagine for, you know, if I've got, you know, that, that section of DNA and I've got my variant in it, those, there are different models that can like tell you different things about it. So the analogy would be with a web page, well, I would have the title of the web page, the links to it, the text in those links, you know, the content mm-hmm. of the web page, the word count, the author, the date. Those are all features about the website, right? Yep. And you have tools and code that could pull those things out and represent that in a featureization to some kind of ML model. Similar in this case, there are, we look at that whole stretch of DNA and the disease it's in, the cellular context, and there, there are algorithms, in this case, they're models themselves that work on how to featureize that to represent that to that whole ranking algorithm. So we term those sort of things as sort of a feature factory, right? So mm-hmm. the ones that look at the raw DNA sequence and will say, well, this is open and closed chromatin. The other one will say, well, this gene isn't on in this cell type, right? You know, and it might imagine the model when it's trying to learn how, how to rank the importance of those things to give you, you know, its candidate list of genes might say, well, well, this gene isn't even on in this cell type that's involved in this disease. So this is probably a low, a, you know, unlikely thing, right? This one's yeah. in closed chromatin, that's unlikely. This one's in open chromatin, it's involved in this disease and things like that. So it becomes a good candidate. So it learns how to rank all these different things and how to combine them. And so it's not a sort of a, physical thing but it is a sort of like it's it's a featureization type aspect right so it's basically featureization by by other sort of sub models themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah okay okay yeah you know, when you think about all of the the various algorithms and and tools and things that kind of factor into and and enable what you're doing and look forward what are the areas that either you need the the most innovation to happen in or you're excited because you see the innovation happening you know whether you know we're talking about algorithms or or tooling infrastructure that kind of thing yeah i think one of the the things that deeply interested in is robustness and reliability constraints and this plays into a you know a debate with you know in regulation and things like that is that as we start to build sort of probabilistic reasoning systems and imagine let's take the, the pathology example where I have images and things like that and we've maybe you know we've designed it well so we've made sure we've got like you know a bunch of people with different backgrounds you know we've got a lot of a large set of training data we have under, underrepresented groups so we've done our best case to do that that's very important and we built a model and the model has good performance characteristics you know maybe 80 percent of the time it's correct and it predicts someone's got a you know genetic gets the genetic status right so we know then who to sequence or not for example i'm just using a hypothetical scenario 
how do we know how that model behaves when you know what's the adversarial image for like a you know for a pathology thing like it's like maybe the area is out of focus right or yeah. it's got a pen mark or there isn't enough tumor stroke how do we know that this model fails gracefully how can we define its, its bounds of operation and things like that and you know for some other methods and things it's easier to define and, and, and construct that for a neural network it, it's it's harder to know how you know some of those changes result in you know the decision boundary actually happening and so knowing that you've trained a model that's for some of these scenarios, you would train off some, you know, some performance for robustness characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. But it is hard to know how the, those robustness and reliability characteristics happen. So we're doing a lot of, we do a lot of research in that area. And we have various um, groups we interact with and PhD students we sponsor. But that's a, a really active area that's, you know, it's not just, you know, our, our organization, particularly, it's, it's across the industry and various things where people want to know. You know those those sorts of aspects, and that's where you get into monitoring those sorts of things. But for us, it's it's all about I think knowing how I can measure that I found a good robust solution, and it's not brittle, right? The small changes in the import don't lead to large changes in the activation. Mm-hmm. That's that's one key area. I think for us, the you know looking at simpler transformer architectures that could lead to the same kind of performance is, is another really key thing because we can train them faster and things like that. So understanding a little bit of that sort of, you know, just the model parameter space, the performance trade-offs and sorts of, those sorts of things. Well, maybe there is a simpler architecture that can do just as well. That's that's a, a common area of research. And, you know, and then a lot of it actually comes down to really biology is all about low end, high dimensionality, right? And uh, sort of biases and time series, right? So a lot of our data, if you think about it, that idea where I've, edited my variant in and I'm looking to see which genes change, right? Well, I can measure that six hours after I've made my edit, 12 hours or 24 hours, and the whole thing is changing over time, right? And so actually begin to start to increase those sort of those temporal dimensions. So this is where we have a lot of time series data and we can generate mm-hmm. that in biology. And this is where I think that's another area that of key research. And probably the final one is really sort of multimodal and end-to-end learning multimodal. So there the classic example is I have some cells in a dish, I'm taking images of them, and I might pull them out and do RNA-seq. And I've also got my time series, let's plug that in for good measure. And I want to start to look at that, and I want to build a model that can classify when a perturbation has made a cell look like the wild-type cell, the healthy tissue, and made its gene expression look like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I like to be able to -to end-to-end learn that. Right now we typically learn the gene expression model the cellular imaging convnet together, we maybe take the top two layers of those sorts of things and you throw that into another model that learns to integrate them. We don't propagate the error back down through all of that just because the complexity of the thing. Yeah. But that's an area where I think that could be really useful. And I mean, the convnets that we convolution size, right? That's that you could use attention on that. You can have these dilated and flexible convolutions where you could adapt that because it might not, you know, picking the one that looked good for that, it could be a very specific one that could work better for that problem, right? When you want to, that's a massive area of research for us. And because we have that in medicine, right? We have your biopsy, your pathology biopsy might be done once, right? When you're diagnosed, mm-hmm. but we can do clinical imaging every seven or eight weeks. That's so like a CT scan or MRI, for example. But I might do your your blood work, right? I can sample, you know, take a vial of blood, and I might look for circulating tumor DNA, right? So things like Grail or or Freenome or those sorts of things, um, Garden Health, right? Those sorts of assays we're looking at literally DNA in the blood that's come from the tumor cells, right? And look, sequencing that, mm. and 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 that could be done. They were done at different time scales, but they're all multimodal yeah. things about that particular patient. And you're trying to integrate all those together to say, 
what's your particular outcome going to be? Are you responding to this therapy? Where are you going to go? When, what, what therapy should we give you next, for example? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, that brings us back to compute because the scale required to integrate all this together is significant. Yeah, it's compute and data, right? Because yeah. you can, we can measure so many things, right? But we're measuring pretty often, often what you see in biology is we can measure more data on things that are less relevant to people. So I can learn lots of data on, a, on cells in a dish, right? But cells in a dish aren't going to give me the effect of like, you know, a, a whole person, right? I can't ever get information about whole organ failure from single cell culture of hepatocytes. But I mean, we're starting to see more complex innovations in biology. So things like organoids and things like that, where they start to have more of the complexity. And where we end up finding machine learning is actually building a bridging model from the, the thing that we can perturb and measure at scale. And then how well does that correlate to, you know, to humans where we can only really like, we can't perturb humans. We can treat humans. If we, if we think we've got a really good thing, we can measure things about us. Right. That's sort of another area. And that's one of the things that we were actually doing with this sort of this King's college collaboration that was recently in the press where what we'll be doing is, an, is, is we're taking um, tumor samples from, from patients, right? And we can culture their tumor, and it's, with an, and it's an organoid. So it's, it's the tumor, but it's plus their immune system. And it's critically, it's that immune system components from that particular patient. And then we can start to see how that responds, right, with various drugs or influence. And we can measure various things about that and look at that over time. And the idea there is to sort of build a model of you know, how best to treat that patient, what are the characteristics, or even what is, what is the risk? Lung cancer, for example, you might resect it. You're hoping that you've got it all and there's no secondary metastasis, but there are some people that will see a higher rate of secondary metastasis than others, right? So could you, how can you identify that, for example? It's this really interesting interplay between the development of experimental biological techniques, the ability to generate data at scale, right? And the ability to build models to kind of connect that back to humans. Mm-hmm. You mentioned robustness as being important, and, and before that, you talked a little bit about explainability. Uh, I'm curious how you think about that and and how you approach machine learning problems with those concerns in mind. Do you you know drive for performance and then back off to the explainability requirements? Is it the other way around? Is it some kind of hybrid? Yeah, and it's it's a really interesting debate because a lot of the times I think people kind of use interpretability or these types of things as a proxy for I don't trust or understand sufficiently the engineering yeah. validation, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I have a question. I was like, okay, I can give you a very, what was a simple model we like? I'm like, oh, I like a logistic regression with like six parameters. I'm like, okay, if I give you a logistic regression with six parameters, right? And maybe I'll only allow like, you know, positive non-zero coefficients. It's a huge number of functional forms can be in that. Most people can't look at it in their head and really understand how that works, makes, makes a decision, right? Or even mm-hmm. set a threshold. So, and we use technology and systems everywhere day to day without knowing how they work, right? Like sure. everyone in the lab. Where it comes down to is actually where you want reliability constraints and how it well performs. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the sort of the trade-off. And there's also, so there's a trade-off between when do we really need to have secondary checks and things like that? We're making really big decisions, right? Like, you know, avionics for flying my plane or maybe doing, I'm going about to diagnose someone with something else. You know, I really need to, how do I, how do I have orthogonal sources of data? How to make sure it's robust. And there's sort of things in the discovery phase where uh, do we need to have something that explains to a human scientist, these are all the key features of why we think this, this cell type is more like this cell type and others and this, this target's pushing it in the right direction. Versus, and there's a trade-off between like, well, 
we're, we're asking the machine to do tasks that a human can't. We're pulling in so much data and we're going to take those results and then check them in other ways, right? There, I would rather harness the full power of machine learning and not hamstrung the system by saying, well, okay, here's a saliency map and having to us, I agree with that or not, or the functional mm-hmm. form. So depending on what we're doing, it's a trade-off. But what we always care about is making sure we build a robust and reliable model. So like understanding how you're assessing it, right? How you measure the performance, how do you understand that like, you know, you haven't somehow an information leakage and those sorts of things come through. So it's attention, but where you do find things is where you have to make sure that you, you know, if you're doing, you're replacing what someone would be doing manually, right? So there's a whole thing of like, well, is this thing better than me? How do I know it's working? How is a quality aspect? And usually once you want to say is like, look, I'm here to automate the boring, Right, so you can actually do and go to high level science, then spend your time, you know, looking and analyzing this, right? And also giving them sort of an audit trail. They can go back and look at the data that went into the system and maybe look at it itself or diagnosis tools, right, on the model's performance as well, you know? So things like, is the input vector within a vector space that's well bounded by the training set and the test set? What does the error manifold look over that thing? Is it uniform or is there, are there spiky regions where it, you know, because we, a lot of our performance measures are global measures of model performance, but you could easily take the input vectors, you can tile them on a 2D plane, you can work out the error function over those things, right? And you can say, oh, wow, overall it's a pretty good model, but like, you know, small molecules that look like this, this thing's lousy at, right? So mm-hmm. having uncertainty bounds, those sorts of things, are, they go a long way to actually putting these things in production. And, you know, Another thing is that it's really important not just to have any model ever spit out a number. Anything we put in production has to give you both a number and a confidence bound and also has to also has to refuse to return a value. They're saying, I don't have that. This is mm-hmm. so far out what I've seen, boss. I have no idea. We can collect those. We can log those. Maybe we've got enough of them. We can build another model. And over time, almost every model becomes a cascade function. It's like, well, this is a global model for this one. This is a model for this. Maybe eventually we can unify them again, but that's really important. Those are all the sort of the functional things because it's it's honestly, it's quick to make a model. And once you give people a tool, then it's very quick for them to use it. But it's the opportunity cost of the downstream decisions that they can make with it, right? They decide to do experiment A and not experiment B, for example. So we think a lot about those sorts of things. And, you know, when you start off, it's always, I want to know how it works, what's the model thinking and things like that. Yeah. But a lot of those theories of mind are, you know, not really truly how the model's thinking even if we do distillation mm-hmm. right and things like that that's mm-hmm. not really it is it's sort of a hack on on on, on those things getting mo- models to predict or, or describe their confidence that's an active research area itself does that requirement that models your model spit that out does that put a limit on the types of architectures you use or is it itself kind of an area where you have to question reliability and trust of that confidence element yeah, it's, it is certainly an area, you know, we do a lot of work on that internally. I think, I guess, Francesca Farina's got some pretty good papers coming out on that, that or he's published that we, we, we've done on that sort of aspect. We try and have some general, generic methods we can bolt onto any architecture. So you can mm-hmm. kind of separate the problem a little bit. Some architectures also give you, can give you at the same time estimates of that, depending on what you're doing. But we also, depending where we are in development and where we're using it, you can you might have greater or less requirements for, for, for that kind of aspect of things, right? And I think that, I think just in the community globally, people are realizing that, right? So for us, it's a key thing, but depending on the stage is and how stringent we are on those requirements for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe kind of one more direction to briefly explore, kind of zooming out. Can you speak a little bit about 
the kind of building an organization like yours in the context of large company, large pharmaceutical company, transformation implications, organizational receptivity to probabilistic models, that kind of thing? Is it, you know, it's a, it's a research organization or a scientific organization at its core. So do you, you know, not have the resistance that, you know? Yeah, look, I mean, I wouldn't have come here if it wasn't for having like you know how is ahead of r&d because you've got someone who really gets it and knows you know you gotta go right by by himself (laughs) like he's an engineer as well it's really important to have an organization that because it's caught at the strategy like people like oh we're gonna have ai mail we're gonna do it and sort of when i came in i'm like look we get like the normal way you hire and do people doesn't work anymore right? I want to interview people and I want to give them an offer in a few days, like within like three days. We're going to do it. We're going to use Hacker Rank. We have all these different things. We're going to show them that we're not this giant assified organization, that we can move fast and do things, right? You know, even to the way we're working, you know, we can use Slack. We're going to be distributed everywhere. We're going to go where talent is, you know, we use a laptop and a thing. We can, we can work that way. Mm-hmm. You know, post-COVID, I think the rest of the organization has caught up to that. So we came in and like did things in a very, very different way, right? And like from, the way we interview HR hiring, but also we all use Max, like this HPC requirements, how we're going to do things. And like, and so we built like a whole new process to do things that are the way we work, right? We work in two week sprints. We have these different types of things. What's interesting is actually seeing the wider organization kind of being given permission to think and innovate and like some of them picking up some of those tech tactics and things like that. And the methods of man- managing science, we can't plan things out for like, this could take longer or shorter. I'm like, well, you know, computer science doesn't work that way either. We actually like, <laughs> you know, it's, I love to think that like we know the thing and we write down all the steps and we just do it. That's not how it works. Right. So it's always a garden of forking paths. So doing that, stopping every two weeks, going what worked, what didn't work. Okay. Now we'll do this. Let's you have a really good way of planning and working across really complex teams as we do. So, you know, we broaden a lot of that culture. You know, there are always people that are true believers, right? That are like, oh my gosh, ML and AI can do everything. And you're like, whoa, slow down. <laughs> you know, like, let's just talk about what we're doing here. And then there are people that are super skeptical, right? Mm-hmm. That are like, well, you know, how is this anything different from before? You know, this sort of stuff or, or to the, no, you'll never replace a human scientist, human ingenuity. You know, I've got a better way of picking things. I can synthesize this on my head. And maybe they really do have an alpha value. Maybe they really do have that. But sometimes a lot of them are like, yeah, I think you got a little bit of bias, recall bias there as well. So it's, it's a tension and a trade-off. Mm-hmm. And like all these things, we'll work out where these, some of these tools based on the technology maturity stack, where they're best used and where we're too early or where we don't have enough data or the right data, that sort of thing. But it's been fun and it's been fun to sort of, you know, as the organization's grown and more people have come in, and I think what people have realized is that you know, if you're interested in doing machine learning in bio, and these sorts of things that companies like GSK actually have lots of compute. So if people that be you know, like Jeremy with MIT is like, now I've got more compute and more data than I ever had. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to write grants and spend all my time doing these sorts of things. And if you get it right, you've got a whole machine that will try and translate to an impact, right. To patients, you know, to, to really do those sorts of things. And that's, that's really important to a lot of people as well is that connection to the part of the whole thing rather than, okay, I'm an academic. I built some good, good idea. Now I have to make a startup and do the whole thing to like, and it's going to take like so long for my work to get out there and actually influence the world. So those are all good things. There are certain pluses and minuses to doing things in large corporations to smaller ones, right? A small startup, we can raise capital. We're all in the same room or, you know, place that we know what we're doing. We're all in charge. Let's go. We don't have to have all those overhead big things. Large corporation takes some time to turn the ship. But once you can focus that whole thing on something, man, you can really drive, drive on it. So 
different skills. Certainly the largest corporations sort of thing I've sort of worked in and the organization has to want to do it, I think is, is, is mm-hmm. the lesson I've learned. Like if they're not really into it or the senior leadership aren't really into it or a large fraction, it's not a core strategy, it's a very difficult thing, right? Mm-hmm. Different companies are in different stages, right? Some of them are externalizing it, but we decided to build a really large in-house team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and so what are the couple of three, top three things that keep you up at night? Like what do you most worry about in your role? Yeah, I think the first thing is being able to generate the data at the right kind of cadence, right? So one of the great, you know, if you're in different domains, right, you can, depending on what you're doing, you can get, you know, high frequency, lots of new data generated quickly. For what we have to do, you know, for example, if you think of like reinforcement learning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got a simulator of the game or things like that. I can get many, many samples. I can run lots of experiments, <laughs> right? I'm in Bioland. Like I don't yeah. get, you know, 12 million data points. I get like 300 data points every four to six weeks and they mm. cost. And by the way, it costs us a lot of money to generate those data points. So then, you, you know, you start to ask this question of like, you know, what's my information gain? What's my model performance gain per data point per time? And where am I? Am I linear? Am I plateauing? Like, you know, how many cycles do I need to run? I can run 12 cycles a year. I can get so many data points. Is that enough? Mm. So it's all about, for me, a lot of it is about, A, am I ever going to be able to generate enough data to solve this problem or generate the right data? And another thing is that the cost of the experiment. But, you know, people will ask like, well, how much data do you need to build this model, Kim? And I'm like, I don't really know yet. You know, <laughs> I need more, but then we'll start to see a trend. But, uh, you know, or, or am I collecting the right data? So it's really about those learning cycles, and those sorts of aspects. I'm really, the other thing that sort of keeps me up enough is thinking about the best ways and the ways that we have other data sources and things that we generate data. There's lots of historical data in GSK that we pull it together and use it in the right fashion. So what I'm concerned about is when we generate data and we're doing things as an organization, how do we make stackable data sources to build this like longitudinal corpus, right? An individual medicine may fail, right? Which is terrible for patients and terrible for us. Our drug didn't work. It didn't work as well as we hoped. But the question is, what do we learn from it? And how do we build data sets that have the same common longitudinal characteristics, you know, maybe a common cause, I can join them up together and I can build this longitudinal corpus of data. And so a lot of time when people are doing an experiment in the lab, you know, they do a data, they do an experiment and then, you know, they'll analyze it for that particular use case and it may, and we lose the metadata or it's lost and things like that. Mm. So I like to tell people like, you know, do, you know, build data for future you so you can use it again. And also like, you know, collect those other data points at additional marginal cost, right? Like that are really useful. So those are the things that sort of really keep me up. The final thing is really about like, if I'm building models in pathology, we're starting to do things that are really like, you know, doing patient prognosis, doing prediction, doing these sorts of things, saying this person's likely to benefit from this medicine or not, as we start to go into it and learn that, is to like, we have to be right. And the other thing is we also, we make medicines for everybody. The challenge we have is that we're using lots of prior information or I'm relying on a system where, you know, I can get digitized medical records or pathology can be uploaded. We can raise the risk of building really great AI advances, but only work for people that are in, uh, you know, countries that have the, the data infrastructure and things like for that. Those are my top things. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time to share a bit about what you're working on and how you think about the the problems in your space. Thanks, Sam. It's been a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of the pod. So cheers. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.